What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Before we dive into this week's interview, I wanted to give you all a quick heads up that the 2021 edition of CMX's Community Industry Report is now available. We had over 500 community professionals and teams participate in this survey, which aimed to answer questions like, what is the value of community to businesses and what are the most popular metrics used for measuring community? We looked at the impact of COVID-19 on communities and virtual events, and we dove into how community teams are investing in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and for the first time gathered data on the representation of different races and ethnicities in the community industry itself. There are loads of interesting insights in this report, and you can download it all for free today. Just head to cmxhub.com. Again, that's cmxhub.com, and you can download the report there. All right, let's dive into today's interview. Today's interview is with Marissa King, who is a professor of organizational behavior at Yale and the author of a new book called Social Chemistry. The book's all about the different kind of networks that form and different kinds of networkers that people can be. She dives deep into networking and community science. This is like, it was so much fun to geek out on these topics with her for an hour. There's so many interesting insights and studies and research that she pulls into this interview. We talk all about Dunbar's number. Is that still accurate? Six degrees of separation. Is that true? Why do people have a hard time forming relationships and participating in conversations? Why do cliques form in communities? Why is gossip a thing? There's just so much good stuff here that you'll be able to apply to your communities and your life in general. You're going to love it. Let's dive in. All right. Marissa, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited for our chat. I already told you your book was like brain candy for me. It was just one after another of interesting insight and research and studies on like community psychology and social psychology and how people connect. And I eat this stuff up. So I have a feeling our our conversation will, I'll want it to go for more than an hour, but we're going to have to keep it concise to just about an hour. I'm looking forward to it. So your book, Social Chemistry, um, it really it's it's an incredible deep dive into how people connect, what are networks, why do, why do networks form, what are the different kinds of networks, and we're going to dive into all of that. But I'd love first to just have you do a really quick intro about who you are and how you came to writing this book. Sure. So I'm Marissa King. I'm a professor of organizational behavior at the Yale School of Management. And I came to this book in a somewhat circuitous pathway. When I was in college, actually, going back many, many, many years, one of my first assignments for a class, like I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, but I was assigned for a class to actually go to the WTO protest in Seattle. So this also is starting to date me. And what I saw there was in some ways changed the entire way that I saw the world, because at that protest, there were groups that had wildly different interests. So there were you know, environmentalists carrying like humongous butterflies and there were trade unions in full trade union gear and there were anarchists. I mean, it was just a wildly diverse group of people who came together for a common purpose to influence large scale social change. And what I realized in that moment is the power of what happens when people 
really different groups of people and different individuals come together as a collectivity and the power that that has to change individuals themselves, but also to transform communities and groups. And from there, I really became interested in studying network science because networks are the best way, I think, for us to understand how do individual level behaviors aggregate and to create these collective dynamics where there's enormous possibility that far exceeds what just an aggregation of individuals could happen together. And so I spent, I've spent my entire career studying networks and how networks work. But what was interesting is once I started to enter the professional realm, so moving beyond just a scientist to thinking about how do we apply this science in life, my professional life, I kept being told over and over again, right? Like you need to get out and you need to network, you need to meet new people. But everything that I knew from network science suggested that that was really actually misguided advice. And for me, it was actually in many ways debilitating like I would rather go to the dentist than <laughs> go to a cocktail party. So that idea of like, I need to network really was at odds with everything we knew from network science. I wrote the book to help people understand actually what does the science say about how we can build more effective personal networks to meet our own needs and support our own goals. But how do we also design networks to allow communities and organizations to thrive in a way it's backed by science rather than just this misguided notion, right? That we need to meet new people or we need to be out networking because it really isn't networking that matters. It's really far more important to understand how networks work. I love it. You're speaking our language here on this show. Everyone who's listening is building a community or building community for some sort of organization. And I think we all believe in the power of community. And for a lot of us, it's an emotional experience lived thing. You know, it's like, we experience a community in our past and we got a lot of value out of it, or maybe we failed to find community at a young age. And that's what makes us so passionate about building community for others today. But to be able to put science behind it and really understand these topics is, I think, something we, we all look for. And so well, what is it that you discovered that is makes that advice of you just need to network the wrong advice? For the vast majority of outcomes we care about, right? If it's at the individual level, whether it's your happiness, your even your physical health, your longevity, the amount of emotional support you get, if it's in the professional domain, your pay, promotion, likelihood of feeling engaged at work, innovation, creativity, almost every outcome we care about, right? Whether it's individual level, professional out networks, or even thinking about community networks, and what allows for successful mobilization or successful behavioral change or what allows for people to, to truly feel engaged with one another and supported for every single one of those outcomes. It's not the size of the network that matters. What's far more important is to try to understand how are those networks structured? And we know from decades of research in the social science that we can actually characterize networks by certain sets of types, and each of those types have certain properties. And so by understanding that, that's where those benefits come from. It's not just simply size. We often focus on size because that's the easiest thing to measure. Mm. But by starting to understand what are these basic really fundamental structures and how do they work together, we can achieve most of the benefits um, that come from actually creating community or developing and how to harness an effective network. Mm, love it. What are the types of networks? Yeah, so I refer to these three network types as brokers, conveners, and expansionists. And each of these types has a certain set of properties. So uh, we can kind of walk through them and we can try to figure out, um, if you're listening, you can try to figure out what type of network you have, but also we can think about how we can apply these to building communities. So the first type 
or conveners. And the hallmark of convening networks are that someone's friends are friends with one another, or the people in the community all know one another well. So you can figure out if you're a convener by asking yourself, if you are having a birthday party, would the people at the birthday party probably all know one another already before they came to the party? And if the answer is yes, then you may be a convener. And what's really characteristic of these types of networks is the friends are friends with one another, but there's a deep investment in long enduring social relationships. So people oftentimes will build this type of network unconsciously if they've worked at the same job for a long period of time or have lived in the same place for a long period of time. And that's how in many ways, just the way we live our lives reflected in our networks. But there's also predisposition that some people have, right? That we certain build certain types of networks or communities based on what we need. And conveners oftentimes really are looking for stability. So you can ask yourself, do you not like changing plans at the last minute? If you don't like changing plans at the last minute, you may have this type of network, um, which has safety and security. So the benefits of a convening network is there's a lot of trust. There's a lot of reciprocity, and they also provide a lot of emotional support. The second type of network structure are brokers, and the defining characteristic of this network type is that they tend to straddle different social worlds. So someone may have spent a long time working in an engineering department and then worked in a sales department because they're the only person really who can speak to both of these groups and they're the primary person who can connect them. That allows them to have new ideas. They tend, Brokers naturally tend to be innovative. They tend to be creative because they're in this idea import export business where they're bringing together people who normally wouldn't come together otherwise. And the biggest sort of predisposition that allows or to, uh, makes your network what it is from a personality perspective is actually something known as high self-monitoring, which is a very mm, unnecessarily complicated way of saying how chameleon-like is someone. So brokers tend to have this property. Um, for instance, they are good at making impromptu speeches on things they know little about. So I'm a broker, hopefully, hopefully I'm talking about things I know about. So um, hopefully we're on safe ground, but that ability, right, to translate and move between groups with fluidity allows them to be so successful at this innovation because most innovation comes through recombination. And this is really the strength of brokers. Um, they're creative, they're innovative, and they also tend to have more work-life balance. And the final type is oftentimes what we think of when we think of networks, which is expansionist. And expansionists have extraordinarily large networks. Most of us know around 600 to 900 people, but expansionists know orders of magnitude more. To figure out whether or not you're an expansionist, you can ask yourself, how many people do you know named Emily? Or how many people do you know named Adam? If you know two or more of both, you're likely an expansionist. So your network is very large. And the benefits of that are that you have a, the opportunity to influence, you have a lot of visibility, and you tend to be quite likable or popular. So there are lots of benefits for each of these three network types, but hopefully by starting to think through how these network structures differ, you can see both how those differences really matter, whether you're thinking about building community for yourself, or you're trying to think about how can you connect different communities that normally wouldn't come together to allow for larger scales change. But each of these types has its own benefits, and it's really trying to think how to, how to maximize and harness those benefits where they exist, or perhaps how can you strengthen areas that you may need more support. Mm. It's so fascinating because people use these terms like network and community just to describe so many things. But when you can break it down, it, it makes a lot of sense that there are these different kind of formats and structures 
And I feel like this is this is one area where it's like really helpful to get a visual. And in your book, you have the different diagrams of what each of these types of networks look like. And so you should just read the book, but you can imagine the convener. If I'm remembering correctly, it's like the interconnected nodes. It's kind of looks like a web of, of all the nodes are kind of connected to each other. The broker is one node in the middle. That's you. And then like groups that tie back to you, but the groups aren't necessarily interconnected to each other. And then expansionist is kind of like the one to many, right? It's like one node with like lots of individual lines out to all the other ones. Am I getting that right? You got it exactly right. And that's helpful to, I'm glad that you could articulate a visual description. It's really useful. And we appreciated how you emphasize the importance of having that articulation or ability to think visually. It's very much how I see the world. Like I just see the world in networks. Mm -hmm. And that's really, it, those traces of our interactions, that's all networks are, right? Or they're just the traces of our interactions on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's a stranger we bump into in the morning or more enduring relationships with friends and colleagues. Those maps are really critical for understanding both where someone has been and also where they're likely to head in the future. And we all have these maps, but the curious thing is how rare it is for someone actually to know what their network looks like, even though it's so critically important. Can somebody be more than one type? Yes, and many people are. Um, it, and some combinations are more common than others. So it's quite common, or not quite common, but it's relatively common um, for someone, for instance, to be an expansionist and a broker or an expansionist and a convener, rather than just being one of one type. It's pretty rare for someone to be both broker and a convener. It happens, but it's actually extraordinarily rare and also extremely powerful. But the thing is, that, right, the, you can certainly be combinations. And one of the other pieces that's important to realize is they are not fixed. Our networks, networks are naturally changing and evolving over the course of our lives, over the course of our careers, given our station in life. So networks can change, which right, that's the goal, right? If we, like, we're not stuck with a sort of one type of network for forever, but we can grow and change them in ways that are more beneficial over time. You center the individual in a lot of, in, in each of these frameworks. So it, it's always kind of looking at the person and their network. Why do you base it on an individual? Can you also apply these things to an organization or a group that's convening or making introductions or connecting or building an audience? Absolutely. I, mean, I usually start with the individual because I feel like it's easiest to learn things when we apply them to ourselves. So if we can see them in our own lives and how they're operating for us, it's easier to start to apply that same set of tools to looking at other things. But right, I'm an organizational, I, my field is organizational behavior. So I very much apply these in organizations. And a lot of what I do in organizations and communities is try to understand how do we map those within organizations or if we're trying to look at social movements, how can we map the social movement and its evolution to understand how these same principles apply, whether it's to people or organizations or even at the level of society. And that's one of the things I think is so cool about networks is that these same patterns reproduce themselves at really different levels. And so it's a helpful tool for understanding things far beyond ourselves. Mm. Have you developed a working definition of the difference between a network and a community? I haven't, but I can kind of talk off the cuff about right, how I think of those things as being different. Again, network is just a simple descriptive tool, right? It's a way of mapping a set of social relationships. But I think the difference between a network, right? You can have a lot of people to, who come together in certain configurations, but they may not necessarily identify as a community. And I, I think 
What the overarching difference is, is that a community has some sort of higher identity or a set of common goals and a set of common purposes. And that higher level identity or shared purpose is what's unique about community that doesn't necessarily exist just by having a collection of individuals come together. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. You've spent a lot th- of time talking about this. Like, how, what would you say the difference is? I think that's spot on. Yeah. I, I find it like the network is almost like the structure of connections between people and community is more of the emotional connection or the shared identity that those people have with each other. Yeah. That's a really nice way of summarizing it. I think what's interesting that I've witnessed is that communities, they'll encompass all these different types of networks within them. So, you you know, the idea of centering it on the individual is interesting because if you break down a community, the atomic unit of a community is a, an individual member, a person, and, and that person is experiencing the community you know, through their own eyes, through their own individual world, their own individual network. And so within a community, you'll have conveners, like people who are just trying to like make lots of introductions and connect people. You'll have brokers who are trying to like identify disparate groups and and find opportunities for collaboration between those groups. And you'll have people who, you know, are just participating in the community because they want to build up more of an audience and 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 have more people follow them. So it's it's interesting to see, you know, a community, the shared identity and the different types of networks that can form within those groups. Yeah, that's a really nice articulation of the difference. So it, it's true, like a community can encompass all of those, right? And you can think about this in the same way you can think about communities themselves coming together in these different configurations. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, that's like your original experience that inspired this was seeing the protests and seeing, you know, even that was many different identities all coming together. So it's like, I always kind of think of communities or groups as these concentric circles or many layers. Um, and I, I kind of see the world the same way you do as like these kind of different distributed networks and, and communities. So it sounds like even that protest, you were able to see different groups and different kinds of networks just within that one experience. Exactly. And that's what was so fascinating. Like, how did this happen? And, yeah. you know, there are moments when you're deeply embedded in a community when you can feel it, right? And, and right, we've also, like, you can measure this right? in social science. It's kind of boring, but I get really excited about it, right? When people feel a sense of community and belonging, you can actually measure the way that it physically gets under their skin and impacts them in a, in a physicality. But there's something that's so powerful about feeling that possibility or of a part of something that's bigger than yourself. And it was, it was just amazing to me in that moment, like, how did this happen? <laughs> and where is this power coming from? And I think that that's like where the magic, like community in many ways is the magic that happens on networks. Networks are just the parts. <laughs> mm. There are two very common theories in community science and networking science that I want to get your take on and see if they're still accurate. One is six degrees of separation. The idea that everybody on on the planet is separated by no more than six degrees from each other. Is that true? That is true. And I think it's one of the most beautiful, for me, it's one of the most beautiful pieces of social science anyway, if we think about it. So 
Stanley Milgram first coined this many, many decades ago by sending letters to people to see how far, how many people would take to pass along the letter to get to a target. And at that time it was six. And then Duncan Watts in the early 2000s repeated this and tried to understand, right, is the world still small? And it was the it's the same number, same answer. And we still see the same property if you look at online networks, for instance, Facebook, and other online communities that you still just see the same. The pathings are a little bit shorter, but the same rule generally applies. And what is so powerful or to me is so remarkable about this is one, it's persistence, but then it gives rise to like, well, why is that true? And why we, it, the world is always kind of the same size or why the world remains small is because you in many ways need all three of these groups. So the world is small in part because there are conveners that exist in the world, these dense groups of connected individuals in which an idea can spread or take off, or it's easy to find someone within that small space. But then you also have brokers connecting these disparate groups. So that provides a fundamental underlying structure that allows for predictability. But then expansionist, right? There's a certain of randomness or um, a little bit of chaos that's induced because of expansionist networks and because they have tend to have this very long tail. And those three pieces, because it's like this fundamental rule of how social worlds work, the existence of those three pieces and how they fit together is what makes the world small. And it's why we still have six degrees of separation. And even though the world has fundamentally changed in so, so many different ways over this period of time, that these same rules essentially are governing our social behavior. That's fascinating. I think Facebook published research that said on their platform, based on their platform, we're now three and a half degrees of separation from every other person on the planet. Yeah, it's a little different, right? Because you've got to be on the Facebook platform, right? So right, there's exactly. a little bit of a selection bias, I think, into that totally. finding, which makes it a little smaller than it otherwise would be. But the idea still holds, right? And that's still actually somewhat remarkable that's even within the same kind of um, margin, like within the same margin that existed decades ago. Yeah, it's really fascinating. All right, the second one then is Dunbar's number. Uh, the idea that 150 people is about as large as our, our individual networks can be. Is that still true? It seems to still be true. So Dunbar's most famous number, right, is the 150 number. And I love how he describes it, which is the number of people that you, if you walked into a bar, you would feel comfortable sitting down at a table with them um, uninvited. And it seems that there's something really important from a social standpoint about that number. So if you look at a range of different indicators over time, whether it's the size of units in the army or average organizational, the size of organizational units versus individual networks, 150 seems to be kind of, there's a range around that number, right? But 150 or so seems to be the number of people that we can effectively maintain a relationship that's based on reciprocity. And that there, he hypothesizes, right, that there are cognitive constraints that make this true. So even with the advent of social media and other things over time, that there's something about this number that seems to hold true over long periods of time. And again, and under changing social, social circumstances. Mm. I feel like with social media, at least in my own personal experience, that it, it's like allowed us to maintain so many, wh wh whatever, if you want to call it weak ties, you're just able to manage a network at much larger scale. Now it makes me think that, you know, someone's network could actually be much larger than 150 today. 
Yeah, I think the size of like the number of people we can manage, right? Social media, I agree with you, right? That's the biggest benefit of social media is that we can maintain a larger network and we're cognitively able to remember a larger set of people. But I think what's interesting is to think about the quality of those relationships, right? So it's an interesting question. Like, would I feel actually comfortable? Like I always come down to this limit. You know, I imagine like, I don't know, like my mom's friend or someone that I see on social media, but I don't actually know that well, would I still feel comfortable sitting down with it? Probably because there's this idea of just, we know that we feel closer to things that we see more frequently and are more familiar with, even if we're actually not close to them. But I think if it com- if you boil it down to like the more important aspect of that relationship, which is one of trust and reciprocity, that's a different type of relationship that even social media, that social media can't really be an effective substitute for that sense of would I would you have my back if I really needed help? Could I trust you? That's interesting. It would be it would be interesting to see if people in each of the different networking types are able to hold different size networks. And I think that they can, I mean, they certainly can, right? So even if you think it right, there's all of these, as I mentioned, like there's a range on and one of the things that's driving these underlying differences and these network types is actually an people have very different preferences on how they invest in their relationships so we all have a fixed amount of time no matter who you are right there's only a certain number of hours in the day and if you're going to have relationships you're effectively making a choice on are you going to invest and focus on a smaller set of relationships but really privilege having deeper relationships and longer enduring relationships with a smaller set of people or do you prefer you're going to spend your time on cultivating a larger number of relationships but by necessity those are going to be thinner or those relationships are going to not have as much depth so in many ways it's a trade-off we're all making um, but it's really each type makes that trade-off quite differently i was just on another interview we just had with cat velos who just wrote a book called we should get together all about friendship for adults And we're talking about how it seems like those middle circles are kind of disappearing, especially during COVID right now. So everyone's like got their like really deep connections, their like strongest ties that they're really investing in in their bubble. And then and then there's kind of the much broader, generally online network that they're maintaining. But it's like the connections in that in those middle circles have kind of faded over the last year. In my own work, I've been very curious about what's happened to our networks during COVID. And so I studied this pre and post pandemic. And one of the pieces that I found most striking is that on average, we found that people's networks, and this is really the acquaintance part of their network, shrunk by close to 17%. Wow. But almost all of that was due to the reduction in the size of men's networks. So women's networks actually have hardly shrank at all during this time. Um, and so I think that there are differences by gender. There's differences. There's all sorts of differences that are important to explore about why this is true. Um, but I think that that there's a part of it that just boils down to intentionality and like remembering who's there. And I think that missing in the middle part, right? Like it's the casual colleagues that you don't see, like you wouldn't necessarily reach out to that has really fallen out of our relationship set or, you know, someone in your community that you, you maybe have bumped into without intention. And it's those people that have disappeared from our networks. Yeah. It's interesting because I think a lot of community builders, people who listen to the show, people who do this for a living or as a passion, it's 
it's kind of their superpower is the ability to hold a lot of it's almost like a crm in their brain they can remember large groups of people and what these people are good at and so you know every time i meet someone i can immediately i just start my head just starts going through like okay like who's three people i can introduce this person to and i can like almost always come up with a few people that i think would be really relevant for them um so it's like this ability to hold that larger network in your head even if it's not a deep meaningful uh, interdependent relationship it's still an ability to kind of identify who should meet who. Yeah, I I love that how you're describing that. And I, it's certainly true, right? Like there are natural constraints on our ability to do this, but we can, certainly can use tools to do this more effectively. So like, you, some people do just naturally have this ability to do it better. But it, when you're talking about like, you're like almost like a CRM, really people who have extraordinarily robust networks, they have to have a system in place for managing those contacts. Otherwise it just becomes too unwieldy. And my favorite example of this is actually David Rockefeller, That's right. who throughout his career wrote on five by nine index cards, whatever the size of index cards, right? He kept an index card for every single person he had met. In the time of his death, he had accumulated hundreds of thousands of these and stacked end to end, they would stretch for almost 16 miles. And the point of that, right? Like is if you want to do this and if you want to do it well, you have to have a system. And a lot of people find that really morally off-putting. But the truth is, right, just because of our constraints as humans and also constraints on time, that you have to be systematic about it if you really want to go that route. I love, I remember reading that in your book and I love that example, especially because everyone in our world, you know, they're so worried about the tools they can use to manage their communities at scale. And meanwhile, Rockefeller just literally had hundreds of thousands of index cards. So it's like, just if you're diligent enough, any system will work. You just have to have a system that works for you. That's exactly right. And one one last thing on Dunbar's number that I thought was really interesting from your book was this kind of like rule of three and how group sizes, I spoke about the concentric circles before, and actually as you move outward, the size tends to triple by three. Can you speak to that for a minute? Yeah, so he and his work found right this rule of three. So I'll try to I'll try to walk us through it. So at the core, most people have somewhere between two to five very close people. So these are the people that you would turn to if you were in desperate need of help or if you needed to borrow money to. It's really your inner circle. So it's usually between two to five people, and then multiplying that out by three is 15 people. And this is usually the, essentially the size of people you would see frequently on a monthly basis. So this is kind of your closest set of contacts, but not people you would necessarily turn to into during a, an emergency. The next layer in that network are, if we take that 15 and multiply it by three, we get to 45. And that's roughly the size of, if you were having a barbecue, um, the people that you would invite to your barbecue multiplying that again by three is we get to 150. So this is Dunbar's most famous number, which is where he says the boundaries of reciprocity really begin and end. And then moving beyond that number is when you start to get into the, uh, you're essentially your acquaintance network. Um, so around mm-hmm. in this example, it would be like around 450 people, but there's actually a lot of variance once you get to this layer and how big it is. So, and it also depends on how we think about acquaintances. And then the final layer of this, which is um, you're starting to get into like the 1500, 2000 range is the people, the number of people you would recognize by sight. I love it. 
Yeah, and then that makes sense going back to this idea that, yeah, maybe you can hold much larger networks now with these tools, but like a lot of those are going to be acquaintances. Even if you're really good at maintaining seemingly meaningful relationships with a lot of acquaintances, you're really talking about that level. Yeah, and I think it also, if, thinking about those concentric circles, it's helpful to realize, right, that we're all making choices about where we're investing our time across them, but also the level of investment that goes into each one is very, very different, right? So if I want to move from three very close ties, right, in that core inner circle to four, so there's research that by Jeffrey Hall that shows like, right, that's going to require an investment of like hundreds of hours, right? Yeah, right? But if lot. I want to add a couple, if I want to even add a hundred new acquaintances, you could probably do that with the same investment of time. This is like the scientific evidence for no new friends. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I shouldn't be I shouldn't be saying I like that. I should but there's something to be said for that. It's okay to like it. I read this book and you know what? I just it's too many hours. I don't think I could do it. <laughs> I love it. Cool. A couple more questions on on that really I love these topics in the book on kind of the makeup of networks. What role does gossip play in helping networks form? And one of the reasons that you see this constraint on network sites, particularly within the inner circles, is um, that, and part of the reason we need, like, <laughs> there's constraints on how large these get. It's because it's been argued from an evolutionary perspective that that's kind of the size of networks that we could have. Um, while still knowing who's going to enforce community norms, who has our back, who's likely to violate the rules and really make things fall apart. And the gossip was key for that ability for communities to form and stay form with the ability to hold an identity or hold the enforcement of norms. And it's estimated that um, we still spend close to 60% of conversational time gossiping, um, which seems somewhat astonishing when, wow. when you start to think about it. Um, but this is the gossip about talking about having a conversation about a third party who's not a part of that conversation. And then once you start to think about your own conversations and you start to reflect on this, it's true. We spend a lot of time doing it and it's not in a malicious way, right? Like talking negatively about someone who's not there, but it just is a way of kind of if you don't really know what to talk about, you usually oftentimes will pick talking about someone who is not there, but someone that you have in common. Mm -hmm. And so there's reasons that we do this from an evolutionary standpoint. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that it's oftentimes conveners or convening like networks who really benefit and harness this tendency of all of us to gossip. Mm. I remember reading in Sapiens how basically posited that gossip is what separated homo sapiens from other human species. And it was our ability to gossip that allowed us to form larger groups because now we can actually feel trust and know each other without having actually met each other. Oh, that's wild. And I mean, I hadn't thought about it from that standpoint, but there's also great research that shows if someone violates or is in, if you're in one of these prisoner's dilemma or like cooperation games, when someone violates it, people will actually pay money <laughs> to gossip about the person who's violating. Mm. And that also has physical effects, right? That you're not harnessing. And so as you're describing the, what was reported in Sapiens, it makes perfect sense, right? And that, because I would say what came to mind for me was like, how did that evolve, right? And the answer right. to how did that evolve may actually have something to do with this physicality associated with gossip. Hmm. That is fascinating. 
All right. Another element of networks that you talk about in the book is clicks. Why do clicks form and what role do they play in our networks? Ah, so, yeah, so it's closely related to this notion of gossip, right? And if you think about, like, we all have a natural tendency to form cliques. We tend to want to affiliate with people who look like us and people who think like us. And part of that is just we want to be comfortable. And then oftentimes self-similarity or self-focus or people who are like us allow us to feel more comfortable. So there's just this self-sorting that happens. But then there's also just a natural tendency within networks. So you take this self-sorting property, which naturally happens. Some of it's due to individual preferences. So we prefer it because it feels safer. Some of it's due to circumstance. So we tend to actually, if you think about who's in your neighborhood or who you tend to be surrounded with by in just during the course of your day, right? The, in many ways, we are self we're segregated by society, which also reinforces this. But you take that and then you overlay it with this natural tendency, right? There are two pieces. Um, this is called triadic closure. So our networks are naturally evolving towards clicks. If you leave them unperturbed, they're naturally moving in this way, which is called this law of triadic closure. And that happens for two different reasons, right? So one is the simple idea, right, of a friend of a friend tends to become a... <laughs> friend, right? And this idea of psychological balance, if you have two friends who aren't friends with one another or they don't like each other, there's a lot of, it's uncomfortable, mm. right? So the either that, those friends are either going to become friends and that will resolve itself or they won't and the whole thing falls apart. So that's part of it, uh, the psychological mechanism. The second piece of it is just sheer proximity. So if I'm friends um, with you, David, and I'm also friends with Eleanor, and I spend a lot of time with both of you, the chances that you're going to meet and essentially like each other because you're alike, right, due to this self-similarity principle is higher. And so over time, our networks are actually naturally, when left unperturbed, um, forming in things like clicks. So it's not just in high school. <laughs> the bad, yeah. Not to dredge up bad memories from high school, but adults uh. do this too. <laughs> It's interesting with both clicks and gossip, you know, they're they're both things that have negative connotations, but the way you're describing it is they're both just natural things that happen in groups and networks and can be good or bad, I guess, depending on how it's managed or the context. I mean, in many ways, if we focus on the good, right, they are in part, they this natural tendency is because it feels fulfills a deep human need, the need for safety. Mm -hmm and the need for belonging. And so in many mm -hmm. ways, if you're trying to create community, this is what you're essentially trying to create a click. I think, and that's the positive framing on it. And I think that they get a bad reputation when they are exclusionary. And I think that that's the difference, right? That they're actually, it happens so often because it fulfills this deep human need. But the question is like, it becomes then, how do you manage the boundary? Mm. And I think a related topic that you talk about in the book then gets into diversity within communities and diversity in networks. Why do networks naturally gravitate towards a lack of diversity? Yeah, I mean, pretty much in every domain, right? If you look at gender or if you look at race, we tend to affiliate with people who are like ourselves. Um, so the vast majority, of, for instance, of white Americans will report having no non-white friends. And again, it boils down to these same principles. In part, it's due to preferences, right? This safety, security, familiarity. Even if it's unconscious, right? We tend to want to form relationships with people who seem like us because it's safe. The other piece is just simply structure. And this is one of the reasons, right? Like if you think about 
your day-to-day life. So much of your relationships is actually just where you're spending your time. And as a societal level, a lot of that is already structured for you. And so this is one of the reasons why it's so important to be intentional about our networks, because if our network's unmanaged, if your network is just an accident, your network is almost certainly lacking in diversity. But by being more attentive to that, you can help get over this. So one thing is we oftentimes focus on demographic similarity because it's the easiest thing to see, right? But we all, if we, we can get the same idea of connection through similarity by trying to identify uncommon similarities, which actually have far more power. So there's a great experiment that shows, for instance, if you tell people that they both have a similar type of fingerprint, they like each other. But if you tell them that they both have type E fingerprints, which are extraordinarily rare, they like each other more. So in conversations focusing on this, like, can we look for uncom- more uncommon commonalities can be one way of overcoming this. And the second is just thinking about like, the structure of your day-to-day life. And I think this is where the workplace becomes really powerful, that the workplace is one of the most diverse places that we ever spend time. So if you look at our neighborhoods, if you look at schools, if you look at voluntary community organizations, they're all far less diverse than the workplace because people tend to self-select into all of those types of organiz- those organizations or institutions. And so by thinking more carefully about how we create institutions that create the possibility of interacting with people who don't look like us, um, and then focusing on like, let's move, let's try to move on to deeper level commonalities or a common sense sense of purpose or identity, we can all start to try to create more inclusivity and diversity in our networks. Mm. So companies like organizations are more diverse generally than neighborhoods, schools, and other types of institutions? Yeah, by a lot. (laughs) Um, Really? And I think that that is something that has a lot of power, particularly in the workplace. Because if you think within companies, also what's amazing about the workplace is you can create networks at work, right? Like, so two of the ways that we create networks are through space, right? So I can actually tell, assuming you're working in an office, I can tell you, like, by putting you closer to someone, physically, that's the best predictor of whether or not you're likely to form a friendship. We've known this forever, right? Space really matters. And the second way of doing this really effectively is just through formal project assignment. And so by thinking about carefully about who you're putting on teams, that natural, just the more we interact with someone, the more familiar they become and the more generally we tend to like them. So it's proximity and frequency of interaction are some of the biggest predictors and at work, we can design that, but it's really hard mm-hmm. to, decide, to design that and force that to happen in, sort of in the wild. Mm. When you say they're more diverse, do you mean ethnic diversity or gender or diversity of thought? What, what, what do you mean when you say it's more diverse? It's, it's thinking about primarily sociodemographic diversity, but also political diversity and beliefs. And I mean, that differs by organization and organization also di- differs by the type, right, the type of company, how big it is, but in general, that that tends to be Industry. true across the board. Yeah. It's interesting because, like, I work in the tech world, and uh, the larger understanding is that tech is seriously lacking in diversity. Uh, if you look at it based on statistics of citizens within the U.S., for example, but you're saying that it, it may actually still be more diverse than these other institutions. Still has a lot of room to grow and needs to improve, but actually better than some of these other 
types of networks or groups that form. Yeah, I mean, I think there, I'm like, right, so tech, I'm like, we could get into a whole different conversation, right? But I think <laughs> right there, you would, the relevant comparison, right, if you were thinking about this is if you work in tech, when you go to the office, is it more diverse than what your neighborhood looks like? Mm-hmm. And probably the answer is no, right? Because most of the people, right, it depends on where you live. But um, sure. usually, like, if you're in an area that, if you're thinking about, like, right, Silicon Valley or something. The, well, I'm in San Francisco, so it's mostly white in my neighborhood and mostly white in the office. But, right. <laughs> <laughs> in general, in tech. I think your point is is spot on. Like, I don't think tech's doing a great job of this and, and needs to get much better whether you're building a company or a community, this is what we talk about when it comes to diversity and inclusion with community, is that if you do nothing, if you don't bring any intention to it, you are perpetuating the status quo. So whatever the lack of representation is in, in the world broadly, you're gonna perpetuate that unless you bring intention to how you're shaping your community and how you intentionally work to bring diversity into that space and make people from those different groups feel welcome. That's exactly right. Cool. Well, so we got a lot of really good insight on kind of the elements of networks. You have a lot of really good advice on how to be build your network and how to be a great conversationalist in the book as well. One thing you said in the book jumped out at me. You said conversation appears to be a domain in which people display uncharacteristic pessimism about their performance. Why is that? What can people do to become more authentic networkers? Yeah, I mean, human interaction is one of these curious domains. If you think about most of our, if you think about most of the other aspects of our life, you ask people how good they are at driving, they'll tell you they're better average. If you ask them how smart they are, most people think they're smarter than average. So in general, we think we're better than average, except when it comes to social interaction. And there are a lot of reasons that this is true. In part, people feel right that they simply just didn't get the playbook when they were growing up, or they actually may feel anxiety about interacting. And what we know is actually that lack of confidence or that anxiety inhibits people from interacting effectively and having more authentic engagement. So the more that you're sort of monitoring your self-presentation or you're worried about how you're coming across, it actually leads to less of fulfilling interactions for the other person, but also for yourself. But one of my favorite studies in this domain is there's a great work that was done by Erica Boothby, and she identified something called the liking gap. And you've almost certainly experienced the liking gap if you've ever left a conversation feeling like, oh my God, why did I say that? Or I wish I, <laughs> I hope I didn't come across the wrong way. Um, and this is common. And what she was interested in, in is studying what happened, like, is this actually true? And so she asked conversational partners in all sorts of domains how much they enjoyed the conversation and then how much they thought their partner did. And what she found is people consistently underestimated how much their partner was enjoying the conversation. So the short answer to this is you're actually more likable than you think, just the way you are. That's really interesting. So it, it's it, what what's the steps then for somebody to become a better conversationalist? Do they just have to become aware of that fact and stop worrying about it so much? I think that's part of it. Um, and what I try to do 
throughout my book is actually to give people the tools of social science to allow them to apply this in their own lives. So like one of the examples that I give is by showing like, how can we apply the most basic element of social science, right? So understanding how social interaction works um, to, for instance, imagine you're walking into a cocktail party. So if I walk into a cocktail party, I pretty much just want to leave. <laughs> um, but what we know, right, based on human interaction, right, is that when I walk in, I often will just see a wall of people. So that leaves me terrified. But we know that people actually don't just form walls, that they turn to fill or form small group, groups or clusters. So then the question becomes, which cluster do you go to? And people have all sorts of different ways of choosing this. So some people, as we've discussed, will go look for someone who looks like themselves. A lot of people actually will just try to go find someone they already know and hang on to them. That would be my second strategy um, if I didn't, if I hadn't already left. But it turns out, right, that when your people are in these clusters, because of just the way that humans are built, that we have two eyes and we have two ears, almost all conversation actually happens in dyads, groups of two. And because of this, if you look for an odd number group, whether it's one, three, five, seven. When you join that conversation, you're giving someone else a conversational partner. And so you're really creating balance. And the key to that, right, is oftentimes if you apply this, so you imagine that you are one of these people who feel this aversion or you um, feel like I don't know how to do this. By applying these basic tools, it actually allows you to to engage in these types of activities more comfortably. So whether it's this for going to a cocktail party, we know in conversation that follow-up questions are one of the most effective ways of having a conversation because it shows you're listening. Listening is actually, if I had one superpower to give to people for terms of human connection, it would be the ability to listen because people need so desperately to be seen and heard. So actually doing nothing in an interaction is arguably one of the most effective ways that you can connect with another person. But these are all just different ways of saying like, the best way to connect is to try to actually just be fully present with the other person and realize that everyone, there's a natural human desire to want to connect. And the more that you can have faith in that process and reduce your own anxiety and own concern about your self-presentation, the more effectively you'll be able to form human connections. Hmm. It's almost like it's going to happen anyway. Just get out of the way. Yeah. And try to enjoy yourself. I mean, there's an amazing joy once you, I, like, I'm someone who just, I, I, I mean, you, you teach what you need, right? So I get what it's like on the other side. Exactly. Um, but when you can realize like, oh, this is actually an opportunity to just be curious and learn and perhaps have a little bit more joy through interaction, it really is a fundamental change and shift, but it really oftentimes requires just getting over that anxiety and lack of confidence mm. that so many people feel. Mm. How does that work on a Zoom call, this dyad? concepts. Oh, Zoom. Um, <laughs> Zoom. I don't know how we got into it, right? There's like, we know, I mean, so first, what have we learned about Zoom? So we know that actually it's really hard to have a conversation with more than four people on video conferencing. So you probably shouldn't try to do it. But in general, um, I, there's great research by my colleague, Michael Krauss, which shows that actually video conferencing impedes our ability to truly connect with other people, that having voice-only conversation is far more effective um, and that makes, and part of the reason that that's true, it, it, what he shows in his work is when we're hearing just voice only, we're actually far better listeners because we're not worried on trying to read visual cues. We're not worried about how we look on the camera. And we're actually really poor at reading nonverbal behavioral and verbal cues on video. So the best idea, the best suggestion I have is actually to get off Zoom and actually pick up the phone. Wow. 
I love that. I'm going to bring that back to my company. Zoom calls are now banished. Phone calls. I will say, I have to say, just in defense of this, <laughs> task performance or task completion time is faster on video conferencing. There's just less empathy and connection. So it's trying to figure out, like, do we really need to do it this way? Um, so Right. That's really interesting. What was that study? The task completion time. The one that you said about uh, Zoom and, and people's ability uh, to connect. It's by Michael Krauss, who Michael is Krauss. a professor of organizational behavior at Yale. I have to look that up. That's fascinating. And we're doing that right now. At the start of this podcast, we we're deciding if we should do video or non-video. And I suggested non-video. And you're like, well, great. I have research to back up that decision. <laughs> and we'll both feel less exhausted afterwards. So that's another added benefit. Is it, is that a thing that's like something I've I've just kind of assumed based on my experience with it? But is, is it like a very different kind of exhaustion that people get from Zoom calls than they get from in-person meetings or phone calls? Yeah, I th- Microsoft has work coming out showing right the, the level of attention. It depends on how long the meeting goes on, but um, certainly the level of attention that's required on video conferencing does lead to exhaustion. Particularly, I think they show it like at the twenty-minute mark. Wow, this is great. This is great. This is the data I needed. <laughs> Change my habits. Love it. And last question uh, before I wrap the fire question round. What did you learn about conveners specifically? I think a lot of people who listen to this would identify as conveners. What makes a great convener? Conveners in part have a natural ability to do this quite well in part because they're good listeners, but their ability to engage in perspective taking, which is really at the heart of empathy. So being able to imagine what it's like to be in someone else's shoes is one of the strengths of conveners and developing, and that can be developed and cultivated, but conveners are naturally good at it, which really allows them to connect in a deep way with others quite quickly. Mm. So it's, yeah, so it's ability to empathize and and that is that similar to the chameleon-like ability of, of kind of adapting to different groups? No, it's different. That's actually a good question. So if we think about perspective taking, right? Perspective taking has in part its power because it creates commonality and shared understanding. So as a convener, right, my ability to understand what it's like or what your experience is like allows us to expand the space that we share and create more common ground. But if we think about what's so powerful and then the strength really or one of the benefits of brokers, which it turns out to be this high self-monitoring or chameleon-like effect, they really don't believe that you have like one true self. Um, And so they're much more adept at matching the culture that they're in. So if you think about the strength of conveners, chameleon, this chameleon-like aspect is the ability to match. So if I walk into a room and there's a certain culture within that, that people talk fast, they interrupt. Someone who is more of a chameleon with a high self-monitor will talk fast and interrupt. Um, versus then if they walk down the hall and there's another meeting that's much more formal, they'll naturally adapt to that, which is a little bit different from perspective taking, which would be like, I'm trying to imagine what the person in the seat next to me is going through mm. based on what they've shared. It's very interesting. Both seem like really valuable tools, but definitely can see how it's different. Awesome. Well, I have to stop asking questions despite the many more I have. I guess people will just have to buy your book and go deeper because there's just all of this is just so fascinating. But it is time for our rapid fire question round. Marissa, are you ready? I'm, I think I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> As ready as you're going to be. All right. First question. What's your favorite book to give as a gift to others? 
I would say my favorite book to recommend to other people is Sync by Steven Strogatz because that was what really lit me up to this whole way of seeing the world. I love it. What's what's that about? It's about the the piece of how our how small worlds work. So understanding, it, but it's not just about social interaction. I think that that's one of the powerful insights there. Is he shows these same properties that apply to human interaction that create the world the small world effect can help us better understand um, the synchrony of lightning bugs and how they all flash together. How ant hills come together and how we can understand both not just human systems, but physical systems. And for me, that idea is one of the things that's most powerful about networks is there's actually some, I don't know, there's some system that's common, right? That transcends just human, beyond human interactions and natural systems. Mm. It's a commonality that connects us all. I love that. Is that, is that on that topic of emergence? It is. It's like a precursor. It's an old book. So it's almost 20, more than 20 years old probably oh, now. Um, I but it. I would say that it's the cutting edge of this way of things, the world. That's emergence is something I still am fascinated by. Maybe do you, are you, are you deeply familiar with emergence? Could you give like a two minute description of what that is? You should go for it. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. The way I understand it is it's a set of rules in a way that emerge that only come out uh, when a set of circumstances are true, generally looking at like living organisms. So it's like a school of fish. The way that a school of fish moves will be very different than how an individual fish is moves and is able to move. That can only happen once they're in a school. It's just like these collective dynamics. I would call them collective dynamics properties. Yeah, so it's, it's in that line of thinking. It's it's fascinating. We we should do a whole nother conversation on just emergence because I'm curious like where that shows up in communities. Me too. For me, it's like the I feel like this way of thinking or these types of questions are like the equivalent, right, of like the Higgs boson or something. Like it's like this is our like social gob particle. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) we may never have the answers, but we'll continue to seek them out. All right, I'll move on to that. Wasn't a very rapid fire question. That's my fault, but I was just got I geeked out on that. Okay, next one. What's your most memorable community story? I spent I've spent the past seven or eight years studying substance abuse uh, treatment, and one of the most power things that I've ever witnessed was actually being able to observe twelve step groups in action and mm. seeing what happens. I mean, it's amazing when you have a collection of people who are so diverse and so different. It's one of the reasons I love baseball games. But see that group of people come together and and be so willing to help someone that they've never met. There's nothing quite as powerful as watching that community come together, um, particularly trying to deal with the emerging issues of substance disorder that I think are actually going to be really problematic post-pandemic. Very true. Is there something that you took away from that observation and research that you can apply more broadly to all communities? There's two pieces of this that I think are really powerful. The first is this idea of principles before personalities, that there's really a focus on the group as a whole and trying to take, that takes precedent over any one individual or differences between individuals. And I think that all communities can learn from that. A second piece that I touch on my book is just thinking about this idea of how do you have an organization that by like, by their own rules, right, ought never be self-organizing. 
And so that idea of just the emergence of community and how you can create large scale, sustainable communities that have gone on for decades is another important way of thinking that I think that um, 12 step organizations have, they can inform all communities. That's awesome. What's a go-to conversation starter that you like to use? What's the thing you're most excited about right now? Mm, why is that your favorite? Because, I mean, it's always nice to talk with someone about whatever they're excited about. And you get all sorts of things. Like, you kind of never know what's coming, but you always can learn. I always get to learn from that. And if someone's excited about something, usually I get excited. So we know that emotions are contagious. So why not start? <laughs> Maybe I should start asking what's brought you the greatest joy lately, but some may be, be having a really hard time. So that's a little more dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I like it. If you could only have a network of strong ties or a network of weak ties for the rest of your life, which would you choose? Strong ties. Mm. Why strong ties? You know, in part, it's just my preference, but I feel like at the end of the day, we know that the thing that makes people happiest and from an emotional standpoint is actually their strongest ties. Got it. Love it. You already offered some of these tips, but if you could offer one ultimate tip to someone who wanted to improve their networking skills, what would it be? I would just remind people that there's extraordinary value in your existing network. And the key to making the most of that is actually just to reach out to people you may not have seen in the past couple of years and just thank them um, or let them know you're thinking of them. Love it. All right. What's the weirdest community you've ever been a member of? Uh, I went to Reed College, which is a really strange uh, small school in Portland, Oregon. So there, like, I mean, one, it's college, so that's already weird to start with. But there were everything from, you know, 12 foot tall bicycles shooting off fireworks to like hippies naked on the lawn. So that's probably the strangest community I've been a part of. That's awesome. I want to go visit. It sounds like a permanent Burning Man. <laughs> All right, last question. If you were to find yourself on your deathbed and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one Twitter-sized piece of advice for the rest of the world on how to live, what would that advice be? It's all about love. Why is that your advice? Because I think it's true. <laughs> right? At the end of the day, right, especially on your deathbed, it's like, what are you going to remember most? And it's your relationships. It's all about love. Follow the love. Awesome. Uh, Marissa, where can people go to learn more? Uh, they can read your book, Social Chemistry, anywhere else they can go to follow you? Yep. You can connect with me through my website, socialchemistry.com, or I'd love to stay connected through LinkedIn. This was an amazing conversation. I am very, very grateful for all the research you've done and for you sharing all these insights. I mean, I, I hope everyone reads this book, whether or not they're community builders, but I think it'll just help everyone understand how to build better communities and better relationships. And I'm telling you, just pick up this book. It's just constant brain candy. You're going to learn a ton of interesting studies and insights. And if you geek out on community as much as I do, I hope everybody reads this book. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I know you're very busy and we're very grateful. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for all your work building community. Of course. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, 
and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.